From Seton Hall University, this is a special interview episode of The Global Current. I am your guest host, Annie Hebel. With me today is Francesca Regalado. Francesca Regalado serves as the Bangkok correspondent for Nikkei Asia, a Japan-based financial newspaper. A 2017 graduate of Seton Hall's School of Diplomacy and International Relations, she received her master's degree in journalism from Columbia University in 2019, where she was the recipient of the James A. Weichler Award for International Reporting. She is a former economics reporter for Yomiori Shumbun, as well as the former managing editor of the Diplomatic Envoy here at Seton Hall. Prior to reporting in Thailand, she worked for Nikkei Asia's Japan Bureau. Thank you so much for joining us today, Francesca. Thank you for having me, Annie. So just kind of jumping right into it. So what made you first interested in pursuing journalism? It was always something that I was interested in. First of all, my exposure to the workings of a school newspaper through the Envoy, which I joined the second semester of my freshman year. After that first semester, I was promoted to international news editor. And that same summer, I did my first internship, which didn't have anything to do with newspapers, actually. I went into the School of Diplomacy thinking that I wanted to be a diplomat for the Philippines, which is where I grew up. And the first internship I did was at the Philippine consulate in New York. That was an enriching experience, and it really opened my eyes to the workings of the diplomatic corps. But it also made me realize that diplomacy was maybe not the right fit for me. And so I started looking for other internships that I could do to expose myself to other paths. And the second internship I did was sort of still related to diplomacy, but in the think tank world. And so I did my second internship at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York with their publications team. So I was working on publishing the reports that CFR produces, as well as some book transcripts. And it was very fortunate that the summer I was at CFR, there happened to be a fellow who inspired me to go into a newspaper internship. That's really incredible. Where was your newspaper internship at? Um, I spent the summer after my junior year interning at the New York Times. The fellow I met, a veteran correspondent named Bernie Bortzman, was the Times' bureau chief in Moscow when it when Russia was still the Soviet Union. And he called me at my desk in the intern bullpen one day and said, I heard you're, you might be interested in a career in journalism. Why don't you come up to my office and let's have a chat? So I went to see him and the end of, at the end of that conversation, he asked me if I'd applied to the Times summer internship program. I told him I knew about it, but I hadn't applied yet because I didn't think I was qualified because I was an IR major and not a journalism major. And he encouraged me to apply nonetheless. I did, and I kind of wanted to forget that I applied just so I wouldn't be disappointed, but I got the internship. And so I was there the summer of 2016, working on the foreign and national desk. And that was the middle of the 2016 presidential campaign. 
That's really exciting. That's really awesome that you had those experiences. I know you mentioned that you got your, or you learned about the New York Times internship through kind of your connections at your first internship, but do you have any advice as to how you got those internships that maybe some current students might be able to take and apply when they're looking for internships? Yeah. One of the editors at the Envoy, who was a mentor to me, described his system for applying to internships. So this is when I was a freshman and he was about to become a junior. And he told me that he was going to spend spring break just applying to internships. Because if you're going to apply to 50 internships, then you could do five or seven a day over spring break. So you can make sure that you're tailoring your resume and your cover letter to every single application. And that seemed like a really smart strategy. So for my second internship at CFR, that's what I did. My first internship, however, I was able to get that through connections that I made at the School of Diplomacy. So the dean, when I was there, uh, Dr. Bartoli, he hosted an event featuring the Philippine ambassador, and he introduced me to the ambassador and his staff afterwards. And you know, I was able to exchange business cards with those diplomats. And then afterwards, I kind of just emailed them and nagged them until they agreed to give me an internship, (laughs) which was a position that didn't exist before. And so that's how I got that internship. So my tip is go to diplomacy events and go to, you know, lunch events at your internship venues, because you don't know who you're going to meet. I think that's really great advice. Networking is so, so incredibly important. So let's talk a little bit about grad school. You decided to go to grad school before you started your career and after graduating from Seton Hall. What made you decide to go to grad school and kind of why did you make that step in your career? After the internship at the Times, I was pretty set that I was going to pursue journalism as a career, but I knew that you know, my time at the Envoy while fulfilling wasn't going to be enough to learn the ropes of being a reporter. And so I kind of had a short list of journalism programs that I would apply to. And Columbia was at the top of the list because of the quality of the program and the mentorship that you would get there. But I also knew that I wouldn't be as competitive if I didn't have work experience first. So I wanted to spend my one year as an international student where you're able to work in the U.S., getting as much experience as I could. And that's why I took a job with the Yomiuri in Washington, D.C. The Yomiuri is Japan's largest newspaper. And when I was graduating, they were looking for an assistant for the economics correspondent. And I minored in econ in um at Teen Hall. So I thought, oh, that's a job that I could I could probably do. And they were looking for someone who could cover international trade because that was the first year of the Trump administration and they were getting ready to negotiate a lot of trade deals, including NAFTA, which eventually became USMCA. And so I got that job. I spent a year in DC covering trade, covering the Fed helping out with covering the State Department and the White House. And in the middle of that year, I applied to Columbia. 
Great. So I know you said Columbia has a, a, obviously an extremely rigorous program, one of the best, but what, what kind of cemented your deciding to go there for you? I was drawn to the investigative program at Columbia. The dean who leads the investigative program is a Filipino journalist named Sheila Coronel. She's a legend in the Philippines, a peer of Maria Ressa, um, the Nobel Prize laureate. Mm -hmm. And she was someone who I really wanted to be my mentor. And I also wanted to study under Walt Bogdanich. She was an investigative reporter at the New York Times. And so when I was at Columbia, I took classes with both of them and learned a lot of skills that I still use to this day. That's really exciting. So what kind of led you, once you graduated from Columbia, to start working for a Japanese newspaper over one in America? I always knew that if I was going to be a journalist, I would want to be a foreign correspondent. And typically in the life cycle of a journalism career, you finish school and work as an intern and you know, you're doing menial jobs like logging tape or making copies or mm -hmm. transcribing interviews. And when I was graduating from Columbia, all the, the, all the opportunities that were available to me as an international student were temporary and not in the field that I was interested in, which would be international reporting. It felt like the only options were three months or six months or one year internships and fellowships. And that would have kept me in the U.S. I went to Columbia on a full scholarship which was endowed by Nikkei, the company that I work for now. Nikkei started endowing that scholarship for Asian journalists who want to return to Asia and report on the region. And that prospect was very attractive to me as someone who grew up in Southeast Asia. So when Nikkei offered me a place in Tokyo where headquarters is, I couldn't see how I could turn down that opportunity. Absolutely. That's fantastic. What was the biggest adjustment that you faced kind of moving out of the U.S. and into that international reporting world? I studied Russian and Chinese at Seton Hall. So my research interests, my academic background was in Eastern Europe and that part of the world. And so I never really had any exposure to Japan. So mm -hmm. when I moved to Tokyo, in the fall of 2019, I had zero Japanese, just a rudimentary understanding of, you know, the country's history and how the government works and some deeper knowledge of its regional affairs, thanks to classes like comparative foreign policy. And so moving to Japan, learning the language, learning the customs, adjusting to the work culture was the sharpest learning curve. The job that I was meant to take when I moved to Tokyo was more of a regional reporting position. I wasn't supposed to be reporting on Japan, but six months after I arrived, COVID happened and the borders closed. So there wasn't an opportunity for me to travel around the region anymore to do on the ground reporting. And so I had to switch gears and study Japanese seriously. And I was assigned to cover the Japanese foreign ministry and the embassies in Tokyo 
And additionally, the Tokyo Olympics, which ended up being postponed for a year. That's really cool. That's really exciting that you got to kind of cover the Olympics. What was it like doing that, covering the Olympics? There was a lot of uncertainty, which you can say about a lot of things during COVID times. We didn't know if they were going to happen at all. And if they were going to happen, what conditions would, you know, the city of Tokyo and the athletes be placed under. And it was a politically fraught time in in Japan because a lot of the population were opposed to the idea of, of bringing in this massive international event that could turn out to be COVID super spreader incident. So covering the peripheral politics of that was interesting. When the Olympics actually happened, though, I was really drawn to the human stories of the athletes who basically had to wait another year to compete. And it's not easy to be an athlete at that level because you kind of, you're scheduled to peak at a certain time, but then you have to do that again for another year if the Olympics is postponed. So there are athletes who postponed their retirements, who just decided to retire and not go through with the Olympics. And so finding those stories and interviewing the athletes and writing about them was one of the best parts of that. I wrote about the Philippines' first gold medalist and the first transgender Olympian. And there was an interesting story that happened during the Olympics where a Belarusian athlete defected when she was being forced to compete and her coaches brought her to the airport to return her to Belarus because she would not compete. And while at the airport, she approached Japanese authorities and asked for asylum. And this was a case where learning Russian at Seton Hall actually came to be useful for me. We did not know where she was because she was being kept in a secure location after she requested asylum and while her application was being processed. So I went on social media and found a support group for Belarusian athletes who speak out against the dictatorship there. And I spoke with one of the leaders of that group and was able to write a story about it. That's really awesome. That's a really cool, really cool thing to get to cover. And it's great that you know, I feel like that's one of the best things about journalism is getting to tell those stories that otherwise might not get heard. So that's that's really exciting. So then what was it like making the transition from that regional position in Japan to working in Thailand in a more international position? I moved to Thailand in May this year after two and a half years in Japan. I was really ready to go because foreign correspondents typically just do three-year stints in their postings, kind of like diplomats. And you sort of reach a point where, you know, there's, you feel like you've reached saturation in a certain place and there aren't any interesting new twists that you can take to a story anymore. Mm -hmm. So I was excited to move to Thailand and have a whole new country to cover. In Japan, I have hundreds of wonderful colleagues who also cover Japan. 
but here in Thailand, I kind of have the whole country to myself and there is so much happening here in the business world, in politics, in international affairs because Thailand just hosted APEC and also like culturally and socially, there's just so much to write about that the difference here is I really have to be wise about budgeting my time and store the stories that I'm able to write. That's really interesting. So what does your typical day look like as a foreign correspondent? Kind of how do you go about finding stories to report and things like that? Grad school turned me into a morning person because I realized <laughs> that if I wake up early in the morning, then I can get my writing done before everyone else wakes up and mm. all the distractions pile up. I wish I was a morning person when I was at Seton Hall because honors classes start at 8 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> So I usually wake up here around 6 a.m. That works for me because my editors in Tokyo are two hours ahead. Mm. So I want to be available when they start working. So ideally, I would get my writing done first thing in the morning. And then that frees me up to spend my afternoon meeting with sources outside or doing interviews or doing research and because Tokyo closes around 5 or 6 p.m their time that's only 3 p.m or 4 p.m here so I kind of have the rest of the day to myself. Stories come in different ways most of the time I'm responding to the news here whether it's company earnings or an investment announcement or the government issues new rules on cryptocurrencies or, you know, somebody in parliament switches parties and that affects the political balance. So it's largely unpredictable with the news stories. For feature stories, those come from a lot of collaboration with my colleagues in the region. The great thing about Nikkei Asia is we have reporters in almost every major Asian capital. So that means we have ideas and we have tips coming in from all over the region. And it's an extremely collaborative team. I'm always texting with my editors and with my colleagues and, you know, just putting together ideas for features. I also work on features by myself. So if there's like an interesting development in Thailand, like for example, Thailand and Saudi recently restored relations after basically going cold on each other for three decades after this massive scandal called the Blue Diamond Affair. And so before the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, came to visit Thailand last month, I wrote a feature story just explaining the background of relations and what happened and mm. why they were restarting it now. That's great. That's all really, really exciting. What are some of the biggest differences that you found working in Thailand or just in, in Asia in general versus working in America? <laughs> How do I say this diplomatically? It helps a lot to work for Nikkei because Nikkei is a brand name that's well known here in, in Asia. I think that's increasingly the case in the U.S., mainly because of, of the stellar work of my colleagues. but. In the U.S., I feel like it's easier for 
public relations and communications professionals in government or in the corporate world to brush aside queries from from reporters. Whereas here in Asia, I feel like I can trust that if I email a spokesperson or leave them a voice a voice message, I can trust that they're going to get back to me with an honest response or they're going to try to get me an honest response. It's also just no, I don't want to get into that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no worries. So kind of in a similar vein, what's something about working as a foreign correspondent that you found um, is the case that you did not expect or that's different than what you expected? A lot of days it feels like I'm back in school, especially the way that I structure my days, I think is influenced a lot by how I structured my days when I was in college or when I was in grad school. So like I said, I learned that I do my best writing in the morning and then later in the afternoon when things have calmed down, that's when I dig dig in for, for research. And there's a lot of there's a lot of reading when you're a foreign correspondent, especially when you're like me and you're just less than a year in, into a new assignment. I'm just trying every day to learn as much as I can about about Thailand, not just about Thailand, but also its neighbors. So I I literally have to do a lot of homework. And then the next day, it's like pop quiz. And every single time that I file a story, it still feels like, oh, like I'm back in college and I'm writing essays. That's so funny. Kind of in in the same vein, looking throughout your career, what are some experiences that you've had or skills that you developed while you were at Seton Hall that you think have prepared you best for your career after Seton Hall and and your career as a foreign correspondent? So I'm only 27, Mm -hmm. uh, which sounds like an insane age to be a foreign correspondent. And (laughs) it kind of does feel like that a lot of the times that, you know, when imposter syndrome sinks in, but a lot of my contacts are very complimentary when they find out how old I am. And they say, oh, you're so mature. Like you're so poised. Um, We never would have guessed that you were that young. And I think a lot of that has to do with the training that we get at the School of Diplomacy. In my job, I interview a lot of government officials, a lot of diplomats, a lot of company executives, and I can't be phased by those encounters. And I think being exposed to people of that caliber while at Seton Hall, while a college student, really helped me prepare for that part of my job. Probably the only time that I got phased during an interview was when I was talking to a Thai pop star. (laughs) That's pretty fun. So one last thing, do you have any advice for any students who are interested in journalism? This might just be general advice for anyone in the diplomacy program. The deans and professors who are so great have your best interests at heart, but I just want to reassure you that you don't have to follow the set path for diplomacy student. I know that the prescribed path is, you know, you finish the program, you take the foreign service exam, you enter the foreign service in your country and become a diplomat, or you work for the UN. There are so many other things that you can do with your diplomacy degree. 
whether you become a journalist like me or you work for a nonprofit like my best friend does. I think out of all the people I know at Seen Hall, only one of my friends has actually become a diplomat. And so there are so many seniors and alums that you can kind of reach out to if you're considering a different path. I think that's really, really great advice. Well, thank you so much, Francesca, for talking with me today. That is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jasmine DeLeon, associate producers Eric Bunce and Hamza Khan, technical producer Andrew Rukuglia and Bobby Kyle, and our regular host, Drew Starbuck. I've been your guest host, Annie Hebel. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch, up, catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 WSOU. Until next time, thank you.